Good morning. Those of you who are here in the house and those of you who are online, Happy New Year once again. You know, I say it, but I almost, does it sound sarcastic to anybody but me? Happy New Year. The happy part, eh, I'm working on that. And then the new year, I'm trying to figure out that 20 became 21, kind of now is becoming 22. Anybody else kind of feels that it's kind of a groundhog day? We're kind of, kind of, kind of here, kind of more of the same here. And what we all were convinced last year this time would be so far behind us, we're still navigating some of the effects of these things. And and it begs the same questions over and over again. Well, when is this going to end? Or how do we navigate through all of this? But I've gotten so I've, I've started asking God a question that's always dangerous. Why? Why? Someone just wrote a book highlighting there are three types of business. My business, your business, and God's business. And the challenge is when we get those things confused and when we start pressing into a question of why, as it regards divine action, we kind of begin to slip into the realm of this being God's business. But I'm not real smart and I did it anyway. But if you're like I am, as the years are progressing, There's not only a sense of maybe stagnation, but maybe even a sense of regression rather than the progression that we know is available to us in Christ. We're feeling a bit stuck, if you wish. And a few months ago, God took me to the passage I want to highlight for us this morning and draw some truths from. And that's in 2 Kings, the second chapter, if you'd like to turn there. 2 Kings chapter 2, and Elisha, the prophet Elisha, Elijah has just been taken up to heaven. Elisha, his disciple, has been left behind, and we find him at Jericho. And it goes here, and it says, the men of the city said to Elisha, this town is well situated, as you can tell, but the water's bad, the land is unproductive. Prophet says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And then he went out to the spring, threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. And never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. Let's pray. Lord, let us hear something today by your Spirit. Not just a message that we can say, well, that was interesting. But God craft us into being the new bowls. God, the salt that you said that we would be as your people. That we might be agents of healing in our land. God, let us not just hear well but empower us to do well by your spirit. Amen. 
Elisha's first few miracles all dealt with water. This happens to be the second of the third. The first one, we parted the Jordan and walked across. We see this miracle here of healing the water in Jericho. We find another one over in the next chapter, chapter 3, where water appears in the desert. Interesting that we find in the ministry of Elisha many, if you wish, types an Old Testament type of the ministry of Jesus. And it's not without note that Jesus' first miracle also involved water, if you remember. It was the turning of the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And so what is Jericho? What is the significance of this place? Where this occurred? Now, we find that Jericho was one of the oldest cities in civilization known to us and it was the first city that was conquered as God was bringing Israel into their inheritance in the land of Cana those of you that even had a cursory glance through Sunday school remember the walls of Jericho come tumbling down walking around the city six days the seventh day shouting blowing trumpets and the wall falls and so, but there was something more than just a wall falling and a city being taken. This city represented something. It represented something in that moment important, historically, from a standpoint of commerce, agriculture. It was, it was choice land. It was in the lower Jordan Valley. And we find that it was so, it was, it was such a rich piece of land. It was known as the Isle of Palms. There were palm trees that grew. I mean, desert, arid land all around it. But Jericho was premium real estate. It was a major immigration route from north, south, east, and west, commerce route. And so it was, to, to, to quote the passage, you can see that the land is well situated. This was the first city that God gave the Israelites as they came into inheritance. And it was intended to be a city devoted to God. That, that no plunder would be taken personally. But if you wish, that Jericho was a tithe of what God was about to give an entire nation. If you remember the story of Achan who took a little something, something for himself and literally brought a curse on the entire camp because he took devoted things that were supposed to have been for God, Joshua chapter 6. But as I begin to look at Jericho, I begin to see some stark similarities between Jericho and the nation in which you and I find ourselves. Well situated, pleasant, prosperous, and yet the water being bad. Hmm, very interesting. 500 years before the moment of this text, Joshua had declared a curse on anyone that would try to rebuild or inhabit that city. And now we find a curse that it's in operation, a spiritual dynamic, not political, not meteorological, agricultural, but a spiritual problem that is working itself out in how this place is able to function and bring blessing. Interesting. The prophet had a solution, but what about us? How then do we see our land healed? 
And this morning, I want to, as briefly as I possibly can, give you four things. I want to talk about some theological suppositions. I want to talk about the symptoms and source of a curse. Then I want to talk about the solutions. First of all, let's talk about some suppositions. What are suppositions? Those things that we assume to be correct. But let me, let me start by quoting a passage of Scripture. The prophet Amos, chapter 3, verse 6, says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Now, I don't know about you, but that's a passage of Scripture that will give many of us a moment of pause. Tilt. It's like, wait a minute. Does disaster come unless the Lord has done it? Now, most of us who've been hanging around grace for a while, or we've been in a church like this, we've learned as good charismatic Pentecostals how to bind and loose and rebuke and bind that rebuke and loose that bind and declare and decree and generally get our Pentecost on. So when we find something that appears to be If you wish, the antithesis of what we see promised in Scripture, we immediately assume it's the devil in operation. So we begin to push back against that discomfort. When in reality, it could be that it's been ordered by God himself. You know, I find a lot of Christians spend a lot of time rebuking God, thinking they're rebuking Satan. I better move on quick. (laughs) Unless the Lord... Has done it. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought that all judgment, all curses had been dealt with at the cross. I thought that was it. I thought that was that that was the 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 the, the point, the moment in history, the moment for us spiritually, theologically, that was it. Yes, but we have this little thing called appropriation. Meaning that it's only when we remember the benefits of that cross, we appropriate the benefits of that cross, that everything that that cross represents can then be represented in and through our life. It's like having a bank account and you're always broke, but you won't draw on the account. It's there, it's available for you, but you still have to do what? Acknowledge it. You have to draw from it. Curses, judgment. It's like, wait a minute, Pastor Jim, but this is the New Testament God. This is the God 2.0. This is the God of love. This is the God of grace and mercy. He's the nice one. I thought that was the one. Let me tell you, let's not go back to that Old Testament angry God. First of all, let me just tell you, God's never been angry. He's not, excuse me, he's not an angry God, but he has been angry. There's a a world of difference in the two things. God, by his very nature, doesn't get up grumpy. Anthropomorphically, if you wish, as if God needed rest. But he doesn't wake up saying, it's not what he does. And yet, because he is a holy, just God, he does get angry at those things that he finds offensive to him, his glory. The crowning achievement of his creation. What sin is doing to his people, the church. Fascinating. And so when we say that there's no judgment anymore. And and let me tell you, this is in the theological waters that's out there. 
I mean, years ago, there was a book written that, that there was no hell. That there was God, a loving God would never, would never have anybody perish. It just doesn't hold, it doesn't hold scriptural water. That's the problem. We get the opportunity to choose life. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. And then along with that is that God is not, that, that, that there's no judgment, there are no curses that are currently in operation. But if we believe that, then it begs these things. One, that God is not holy enough to judge. You ever heard this? You ain't the judge of me. Let me just tell you, God's a judge of it all. Why? He made it all. You make it, you get to judge it. Two, somehow we've met the holy standard. Hey, I'm good. And then that leads us to three, that our need for someone to become a mediator, to stand in the gap between a holy God and our unholy person becomes unnecessary. You see, when we follow through logically these suppositions that there's no judgment, when we're saying God has no right to judge, then in, re and in reality, we have negated the core of this gospel. We have negated the need for a savior and a mediator. Hmm. Proverbs 14, 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. R.T. Kendall, who is a theologian, was here with us back in the fall. He writes in a recent book, and I quote, the difference between God's covenant with Israel and America's relationship with God is simple. God initiated his covenant with Israel. America chose to be called a nation under God, unquote. Now, you know, the challenge in that statement too: one nation under God on our money, on our public buildings. We hear this all the time. The challenge with that. Could it be that as we chose this, that we are held by an even greater standard by God because we're the ones that chose? I just put it out there for you. Isaiah 24, 5 says, The earth is defiled by its inhabitants, for they violated laws, altered statues, and broke the everlasting covenant. Could it be? Could it be that the challenges that we are facing as a nation, as a corporate people, could it be their hardships that we have brought upon ourselves? Suppositions. So then, how do we diagnose this? You go to the doctor and you describe for him your symptoms. And from those symptoms, he's able to provide a diagnosis. And so let's look at what some of the symptoms of a curse might be. Now, Deuteronomy chapters 28, well, actually 27 through 30, talk about covenant. It talks about the blessings of obedience and the lack of blessing of disobedience. And there are many, many blessings associated with the covenant. But in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, we find this word which becomes a speed bump, the word however. However, if you do all these things over here in these first 14 verses, you good. However, when you don't, then things become less 
than good. And I want to highlight just by way of diagnosis and symptoms, a few of the marks of what that curse looks like. And I want you to, as you hear this, connect the dots with some of where we're living in currently. One, a lack of productivity. 28.17 of Deuteronomy, your basket and kneading trough will be cursed. And you will sow much, but you will harvest little. Anybody heard the word supply chain of late? Heard the word inflation? Economic uncertainty. I mean, we, we see that, well, you know, this will all correct itself. And these are, you know, big Keynesian cycles of the economy and all. But what if? What if they're symptomatic of a curse? The curse speaks of health. The Lord will send plagues, harsh and prolonged disasters, and severe and lingering illnesses. Let's move along quick. Mental health says the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, a despairing heart. You'll live in constant suspense, filled with dread, both night and day, never sure of your life. Mark of a curse. Speaks of weather, scorching heat, drought, the sky over your head, bronze, the ground beneath you, iron, and the Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. Have we had some strange, pretty strange weather of late? Last night, in looking over these notes again, I was, I was reading, and today is another weird weather day across the country. And I quote, this was from the news last night, the first day of 22 has become part of a recent rash of wild weather, including devastating tornadoes across multiple states, drenching rains in Southern California, gusting winds in California that fueled a devastating wildfire. Could it be that the very creation is not just being subtle anymore, but yelling at us, hey, something's not right. Could it be that the creation is talking to us? Are we listening? Could it be that global warming is not just a socialist agenda or paranoia? Could it be part of something larger that's got a spiritual orientation attached to it? I just put it out there for your question. And one manifestation of judgment is when God simply moves his hand of restraining grace off of a people and allow what's inside to come out. Period. When God's spirit that represses all of the evil that's inherent, and I hate, sorry, but in you and me, when he lifts that hand off of a people and allows that stuff to come out, then we get the description that we see Paul writing about to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. In the last days, there will be terrible times. And why is that? Here's why. Because people will be all of these things. And in that list, it says, slanderous without self-control, brutal and not lovers of the good. So are we living with the symptoms of a curse? I think so. So as much as you would go to your doctor, 
He would want to try to contract, contact Trace. All right, who have you been with? Where did it come from? What is the source of this? Well, let's look at this. A curse. And this is my definition, but it works for this message, and so just accept it. The spiritual and natural consequences of unconfessed, unresolved, or unreconciled sin. Let me say that again. A curse. The spiritual and natural consequences of unconfessed, unresolved, or unreconciled sin. Now, everybody's got their own thought about what the sources are. To quote R.T. Kendall again, he believes that America is under judgment for at least four reasons, and I quote Dr. Kendall. One, racism. Two, abortion. Three, same-sex marriage. And four, theological liberalism in the church. Now, I think that that's a pretty solid list. In terms of why a holy God might be less than thrilled with us as a people. But to unpack this just a little bit further, Deuteronomy 28, 20 says, The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke. Wow. Because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. Now that's an interesting passage because it doesn't say because of the evil. But he describes in that passage that evil is what? It is forsaking him. Wow. This then becomes part of the genesis or the release of a curse. Deuteronomy 29, the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? How many people know that, you, that, that there are other folk looking on from other nations and they're wondering what's happened to the United States? My wife and I, pre-COVID, had the opportunity to travel to quite a few places around the globe. And people would look at what was going, going on with us. They were looking at the seedbed of a civil war. They were, they were, they were looking at a, a capital that was under siege, whatever you want to call whatever that was. And they look at it from a distance and they say, what in the world? We, the United States, we thought that was, the na- that was the paragon. That was the example of what a federal republic, a democratic people rightly ruled could look like. Help us. We're in crisis. And every place that we went, people were asking us, can you help us with this? Why has the Lord done this to this land? And the answer will be it's because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord. And they went off and they worshipped other gods. Wow. You see, what happens is when we lose that covenantal understanding that God has always dealt with his people by way of covenant. It's a word that means very, very little in our culture anymore, sadly. But God is a covenantal God. The name of this church is Grace Covenant Church. It sounds like we'd be a great Presbyterian church, doesn't it? (laughs) Oddly enough, the church that I pastored in North Carolina, I was at the table when we chose the name Grace Covenant Church. It's very specific. And God deals with his people because he's a covenantal God. God cannot tell a lie. 
When God says he's going to do a thing, he does it. That's how God is. And yet, when we don't understand that covenant, we begin to immediately, we begin to turn and find something else to get bonded to. Something else whereby which we can enter agreement with that because it is the most convenient. It is the thing that will give us the most comfort in that particular moment and provides possibly the most benefit with the least cost. So we turn to other gods. We find that three of the first, uh, three of the first uh, of the Ten Commandments, the first two, thou shalt have no other gods, second, no graven image, no idol, and the third, not taking the name of the Lord in vain, which I believe is connected to the first two. God right out of the box was very specific because he knew what was going to be inclined in the heart of men and women. As a matter of fact, while he was giving the law to Moses, what were they doing down the hill? Making an idol to worship. Say, well, Pastor Jim, I don't have any graven images in my house. I'm not worshiping other gods. Let's talk about that a minute. Because other gods are not going to be so overt as to tell you, yo, hey, yo, false god over here, worship me. It's not going to be not going to be quite that overt. It's going to be a lot slicker than that. And I'm going to give you what I think is part of our challenge. You know, we look at worship, idolatry. By definition, it is blind or excessive devotion to something. Excessive devotion. Could I submit to you that we have a lot of gods in our culture? We really do. Mammons being one of them. Amusement or entertainment is another. But connected with that amusement and entertainment comes another one. It's celebrity. So we love, we love our celebrities. People magazine. I mean, we hear so much more about our sports heroes, our entertainment heroes, our music heroes, whoever they are, in that you get around a discussion of people and it's you know, who threw for how many on Sunday. We can talk about that, but we don't talk about the real celebrity in the church. It's not who stands in the pulpit. It's not who's big, building the biggest ministry or has got the slam in his worship team. There's only one celebrity in the kingdom, and it's the king. There's only one celebrity in the church, and it's Jesus. And yet, sadly, we don't act that way. We really don't. And could I tell you what the biggest celebrity idol of all is? Itself. The mirror has become the new altar. The mirror is the new altar. Say, oh, no, 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 no. You, you got me wrong, Pastor. No, I don't. Because we would never call ourselves gods. But if you look at the excessive devotion, attention, affection that we give self... So we use different words. We use words like destiny, realizing of my potential, betterment, self-actualization. We've got all kinds of terminology that the world has superimposed on it. But in reality is that the whole thing has been turned upside down. It's now the center is about us. It is about God being the great enabler to enable us to become a greater self. 
And so the object of worship now has shifted to you and me rather than to the God of heaven. You see how subtle this is? And the church does it. The church does it through therapeutic pulpits. Oh, God loves you so much. He knows, he knows you're a mess. But you know, God loves you and your mess. And he's just going to make you great in your mess. You're going to be a great mess. And we all, we all just going to love everybody through our great messes. And we love these therapeutic messes. So we, we walk away, man, that pastor was speaking right to me. I just feel so good about me today. And so I'm sorry, but the great revivals of the past, people didn't walk away from a message. I feel good about me. They were like, oh, my God. <laughs> they were the messages that fuel the great revivals of history. Wow. The idolatry of celebrity. Innocent blood. We're talking about the sources of curses. Cain killing Abel. Your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Innocent blood, and we've heard so much about it over the past few years as, 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 as the horrors of the racial reconciliation intentions that still go on and the, and the oppression of people and the blood that is still being shed. And we hear that blood crying out for resolve and restitution. But what about 62 million aborted babies since 1973? We don't talk about that anymore. That's old news, Pastor Jim. That makes me uncomfortable. Good. You don't think 62 million innocent babies that have been aborted in this country primarily on the basis of convenience, you think that blood is not making a lot of noise in heaven. And we wonder why there's a curse on our land. And our laws, through administration changes, promises, Supreme Court appointees, Republican, Democrat, religious right. We've seen that law remain the law of the land since 1973. Going on now almost 50 years. And we wonder, what is the source of the, course, of the curse? So what do we do? What do we do? Peter preached a message at Pentecost, something to the effect of, Hey, you murdered God. Now what you going to do? Talk about a sermon. But he gave them a solution. Repent and be baptized. So what do we do? Quite frankly, the solution is very much the same. Deuteronomy 30, verse 17, or verse 11 rather. What I'm commanding you today is not difficult for you or beyond your reach. We read down a bit. The word is very near. It is in your mouth and in your heart that you may obey it. And I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Choose life that you and your children may live. Choose. Choose. And that's the message that begins 
in the church. 1 Peter 4, it's time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. We talk about the church being a purposeful people, missional, yes. We talk about the church being a prophetic people, yes. But there's another aspect of the church that we have to embrace in this hour, and it's the priesthood and the priestly function that I believe that God has vested and invested in us as a people. First Peter says, you are a what? Royal priesthood. And yet, how about those priests? Ezekiel 22, 26. Her priests do violence to my law and profane holy things. They don't distinguish between the holy and the common. And they teach there's no difference between the unclean and the clean. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call good evil and evil good, who put darkness for light. This is the liberal theology I think Dr. Kendall was speaking about. So in other words, I'm not going to call it out. I'm not going to tell you that your lifestyle choices, they're not only killing you, but they they are an offense to God. And they are bringing a curse to you and to those around you. I said, ooh, ooh, ooh. Pastor, uh, bring, get Pastor Brett in here quick. <laughs> Paul wrote in Acts, I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will or the whole counsel of God. D.A. Car- uh, Carson, who's a, a theologian, talks about what is this whole counsel of God? Is God's purposes in the history of redemption and unpacking of human origin, fail redemption and destiny, the conduct expected of God's people, and the pledge of transforming power? The redemptive purposes of God. Could there be the redemptive purposes of God in judgment? Could there be the redemptive purposes of God in a curse? Yes. Hebrews 12, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And I believe in this hour there's a demand on our cooperation and our participation. How do we do that? We go back to our original text in 2 Kings. Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. Now, there was nothing particularly magical about this. We don't see the prophet doing it again. As a matter of fact, we don't see it repeated anywhere else in Scripture. This was a prophetic action. But in this moment, this is what God had the prophet do. But if you'll let me unpack that and apply that for a moment, a new bowl. A new bowl simply means something that there's never been anything in it before. James talks about True religion is to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Proverbs 25, a righteous man, like a muddied spring or polluted well, is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. A new bowl, nothing else there. And then by implication, a new bowl is empty. It's ready to contain something. 
So many of us are so full of everything else that if God were to somehow come down from heaven, would there be any room for him at the end? Would there be any room for him in the bowl of our lives and in the bowls of our churches? And then salt. Salt can be both an enhancing agent, a purifying agent, a sterilizing agent, depending on how much. Jesus talked about you're the salt of the earth, but he also said that if salt loses its savor, what? It ain't no good anymore. How does, how does salt lose its savor? You know how it does? It gets in proximity to something else. And then what happens is that the savor, the saltiness and the salt gets leached out by that which is next to it. This is what happens when the world gets in our lives. This is what happens when the world gets in the church is that the saltiness that God intended for us to be, to salt the world, if you wish, with this message of this gospel, what happens is that we lose our saltiness, that people, where it should be something that should be on the tongue, it should be different, it should be immediate. It's like, that's just not real good. I'm not tasting what I should taste. People don't want to come in here and see a better version of the world. They want to taste and see something completely, utterly different. My goodness. Have we lost our savor? And we all want restoration and restitution and revival. We're looking for it to fall. Just like in the days, of, just, just like in Acts 1 and 2, we want, we want Pentecost to come to us. But could it be that revival is already inside of you and I? Could it be that God is wanting to break the dam, to break the curses in your life, my life, in the church and in the nation so that the rivers of revival might come bursting forth? He said, out of your belly shall flow what? Rivers of living water. He didn't say a trickle. He said rivers. Ezekiel 47 talks about a river. It originates with the throne of God. And as the prophet was seeing this, God showed him a river that says that no man could cross. Let me tell you, God begins to move. No man can cross it and no man can take credit for it. But it says everywhere that river flowed, things changed. It flowed into the sea and it made the water fresh and all of a sudden it could sustain life. And because that river flowed there, fish showed up. Fishermen showed up, harvests began to happen, and trees began to grow on each side of that river. And it says that they, 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 they never, their fruit never failed to come month after month. Their leaves served for healing. Do you realize that is a picture of what the Christian life is supposed to be, ladies and gentlemen? And I'm thinking that we're looking for these external events some cataclysmic change with governments or the, a virus all of a sudden going away or whatever it might be. I don't know, dollar bills coming out of the <laughs> vents and the church. I don't know, maybe gold dust and feathers. Or, I don't know what. However we think it's going to come to us externally, might it be that revival is already among us? 
And we're looking here, and God is saying, let's break the dam and turn the revival rivers loose. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. Saints, we live in a dark moment. So, oh, you, you, that's, that, you shouldn't say that on the first message of the year. Can we just open our eyes and just talk about it for a minute? We live in a dark hour. And we live in the kind of darkness that only spiritual lights will penetrate. Oh, we've tried everything else. The scientific, the legislative, the ethical, the appeals. Everything possible in terms of how to turn a tide or change what's in the heart of a man. Let me just tell you. It's only the rivers of God that can do it. It's it. And yet, God's wanting us to assume that role as a priesthood. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And we've quoted this passage so much it barely means anything anymore. But verse 14, or starts in 13 rather, when, and that's an important word, When I, God speaking, I, God, when I, God, shut up the heavens so there's no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. That's a problematic verse right there. When I sin among my people. But then he tells us this. If, conditional statement, my people called by my name, very specific, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Here's the promise. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. But what becomes prerequisite to all of this? Repentance. Repentance. We'd love to find another way through other than this. And let me say that repentance is not something we do because we feel bad about something we just did. Yes, that's part of it. Martin Luther, in his first thesis, quote, When our Lord Jesus said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Let me just tell you, I start and end my day. Some people do it in worship and praise and talking in, in, in heavenly languages. I start apologizing. I start by repenting. And I end my days by repenting. Once again, the great moves of God of the past have always come with these deep spirits of conviction falling on God's people and then responding accordingly. Greg Morse writing in Desiring God, he said, let's let January mark a fresh beginning of repentance. That repentance is in itself a kind of January, a newness, through which God renews a right spirit within us and restores our first joy in salvation. 